Hello, and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And I'm Nils, your biggest fan. And we will be <laughs> learning about national anthems. Each week we will choose a new country at random. We will learn a little bit about this country, and then we will listen to their anthem. After listening, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. We don't want you to think that because of the title, we're huge fans of O Canada. In fact, we plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly throughout the show, and we do not expect it to finish highly in the rankings at all. So, Nil, something we've been asking our, our guests, actually, is, like, how do you feel about O Canada? Because we are a couple of O Canada haters, but we, we know not all of our guests will necessarily feel that way. I just remember being a kid, like, standing behind a desk for what felt like so long. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so, yeah, I don't care for it. Yeah, it's, it's just dull. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. We complain a lot about the kind of anthem formula, the... You know, we love our country. God, God loves, loves our, our country. country. Our country is good. And yeah. Canada is just that. They don't do anything even remotely creative with it. And Well, it does. Have, one thing that's cool about it, though, is that it does have two different versions in different languages that have different lyrics and different meaning. That's true. That, that's that, true. that is common. interesting. Yeah. Also not super uncommon, though. We've seen lots of. We have seen a couple of those. Yeah. Different. Oh. But uh, <laughs> this week, uh, we are going to be talking about the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. Uh, so I do believe the the more commonly accepted English pronunciation rather than the, the traditional Arabic pronunciation. I believe the, the English pronunciation is more Sahrawi. Uh, it's a little easier for me to say, uh, but it is a, a self-declared state that claims the disputed territory of Western Sahara. So this territory borders on Morocco to the north and west, Mauritania to the south and east, and Algeria for just like a couple miles way up on the northeast border. Like it just sort of kisses Algeria. Um <laughs> The the country is virtually all desert. I saw a stat saying that there was like 0.02% of the land was arable farming land. Like any agriculture that happens, happens in small oases. We are talking about a desert. The word Sarawi means of the desert. Cool. So there's really not much known about the prehistory of the nation. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of history out there for this nation at all. This is sadly going to be probably one of the shortest episodes we've done. And and I'm, I'm going to try to get as much of it as I can because I find this country really interesting. And it's an ongoing issue that like no one I've ever spoken to has ever heard about what what is happening here. So the there were isolated groups of rock engravings found across the region indicating the presence of nomadic people sort of prior to the desertification of the Sahara. So, like, you know, before the Sahara is as we know it today. Uh, the region has always been subject to shifts in climate between aridity and humidity uh, just because of quirks in sort of the tilt of the Earth's axis. But it's believed that about five to 8,000 years ago, this shift, for whatever reason occurred at a much greater rate than it had before, resulting in the creation of 
the Sahara as we know it. Uh, so by the 4th century BCE, there is some minor trade happening between Saharan peoples and the Phoenicians and Romans. The Phoenicians have sailed down the west coast of Africa at this point, so there there is a bit of contact there. The, the region during this period is inhabited by peoples who will come to be known as the Berbers, and... Uh, that's uh, a really big ethnic group in North Africa, basically. And uh, yeah, these are these are Berber people living here at this point in history. So the simplest definition of like what the Berber people are is that they're the descendants of the pre-Arab inhabitants of North Africa. So Berber languages are descended from ancient Egyptian. Okay. Which I thought was really interesting. That I didn't know really that we had sort of direct lineage from ancient Egyptian in active living, living languages. Yeah. Uh, but particularly dominant within this region uh, were Berbers of the Sanhaja group of tribes. Uh, and by about 1000 CE, Arabic-speaking Bedouin peoples had moved into the region, largely from modern-day Yemen, I believe. Uh, and they dominated the Sanhaja Berbers, basically just took over this whole area. And the descendants of these like Bedouin and Berber people are what will become the Sarawi people. Uh, so the first notable contact with the Iberian Peninsula with Spain uh, would come in the late 1400s, where Spain had set up a trading post in Western Sahara, though that only lasted, I think, maybe 10 years. That wasn't a big deal. It works out nicely that we just did Spain. Yeah, it does. Uh, there, there wouldn't be a lot more significant contact until, like, the 1800s. Like, mm. we're skipping so far forward <laughs> in this episode. So in, in 1884, a guy named Emilio Bonelli sailed to the Rio de Oro Bay on the west coast of Sarawi and signed treaties to establish a Spanish protectorate, thereby establishing what what uh, was known as Spanish Sahara. Uh, I tried to find more detailed accounts of, like, the history of Spanish Sahara, and I guess uh, this band Fools just released a song called Spanish Sahara, <laughs> so all I was getting were, like, the lyrics to this Fools song, <laughs> uh, which wasn't super helpful. Uh, Bonelli... Maybe you should contact them. Maybe they know about it. Maybe. <laughs> the song didn't really go into much depth, sort yeah. of a, a toss-off reference. But uh, this guy, Emilio Bonelli, was a member of the Spanish Society of Africanists and Colonists, which I bet they're a cute, cuddly group of folks. <laughs> sure. the, this is an <laughs> ultra-nationalist group that encouraged Spain's colonial involvement in Africa and like heavily yeah. lobbied for this. France had made claims on Mauritania at this point, right nearby. So over the next 50 years or so, France and Spain hash out the boundaries between what will become modern day Morocco and Algeria and Mauritania as like, this is what Spain owns and this is what France owns. They had problems too, because they border each other also. Like, yes. In Europe, which doesn't help this whole like... It, it certainly raises the stakes when yeah. then your colonies are also bordering yeah, on each other. Exactly. So when Morocco eventually gained independence from Spain, Spain did remain retain control of 
sort of the remainder of Spanish Sahara, which is roughly the borders of Sar- of Sarawi. A year later, Morocco would make a claim to the province saying that they they were going to take over it, though their military wasn't able to get past the Spain at this point. In 1960, Mauritania also made a claim on the province. Mm. So Spain has been sort of pulling their resources out of the area for some time, and these newly independent countries are looking at this stretch of desert just being like, we're gonna take that yeah, like what's, if what's if Spain the, doesn't want it. What's the point of colonizing a, a place like that even if you're, you know what I mean? Is it just domination? Like, I, I guess like, that's that's the, certainly the impression I get is the perspective of like the Spanish society of, of colonists and Africanists. Like right. this is very much sort of the, the white man's burden era of yeah. like it is our solemn duty to whatever yeah yeah, yeah. what year is it at this point the natives uh i mean we're maybe yeah. a little past that at this point uh where it's all sort of coming apart it's 1960 now where okay. where mauritania is is making a claim but certainly when spanish sahara was being established in 1884 is is right in the middle of that yeah so in december of 1960 the un would pass resolution 1514 and i think this is something that a lot of histories we've looked at have glossed over mm. because this, I think, is part of the reason why every country on Earth became independent from like 1960 to 1963. Yeah. Um, the Resolution 1514 was the Declaration on the Granting of Independence to Colonial Countries and Peoples. So I'm uh, just going to read uh, verbatim the first three like lines of the the declaration of like the conclusion they come to mm-hmm. uh so number one the subjection of peoples to alien subjugation domination and exploitation constitutes a denial of fundamental human rights is contrary to the charter of the united nations and is an impediment to the promotion of world peace and cooperation number two All peoples have the right to self-determination. By virtue of that right, they freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. Number three, inadequacy of political, economic, social, or educational preparedness should never serve as a pretext for delaying independence. And that third one, I think, is a fucking doozy. It is. Considering the, the amount of, like, patronizing... We're just going to like babysit you guys until you're able to run a country that was going on at this time. Yeah. 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 So this, I mean, UN resolutions are kind of pointless. They don't, they're not super binding. Like, so it's like a nice idea, but yeah, yeah. this isn't to say that like with a single stroke of a pen, the UN made all peoples independent, but it is to say that the general assembly of representatives of nations was feeling at least the majority of them positive about this sentiment, which, which isn't nothing. No. So in 1963, the UN designates Western Sahara as a non self-governing territory. And in 1963, like a couple months later, Spain discovered massive phosphate deposits in the northwest oh, of Sarawi, no, no. increasing <laughs> the economic allure of the province for both Morocco and Mauritania. So the Sarawi people are becoming 
increasingly unhappy with this point at the way the Spanish are using them as a bargaining chip between yeah. Morocco and Mauritania, and who could blame them? And anti-colonial sentiment starts to spread very quickly and very powerfully through the region in the late 60s and early 70s, particularly within the indigenous Sahrawi people. So in uh, this was then further accelerated by another UN resolution in 1969. Resolution 2229 was made to specifically reaffirm that the resolution we talked about earlier, Resolution 1514, this one was just to say that Resolution 1514 does in fact apply to the Sarawi people. Oh my god, they had to do a special one just yeah. for them? Just oh. to be like them too. <laughs> like it's not funny, but it's hilarious, you know? Yeah. So, Despite the phosphates, this still counts. Yeah. <laughs> like doesn't matter what natural yeah. resources you have. In 1973... The founding would come of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Sagua El Hamra and Rio de Oro, and this is known more popularly as the Polisario Front. And this was founded by indigenous Sarawis, and their, the Polisario Front's stated goal, at least at the time of their inception, was to liberate the Western Sahara from Spanish occupation. They would begin a guerrilla rebellion against Spain, uh, in the mid-70s, and Spain would then declare that they were withdrawing from the region in 1975. With Spain's announcement that they were withdrawing from the Western Sahara, the International Court of Justice held a meeting between Morocco and Mauritania. And the outcome of this meeting, both countries sort of presented their legal and historical claims over the province and why they thought they deserved it. And the ICJ declared, neither of you gets it. Um, so disregarding the ICJ's declaration, the Moroccan government would initiate a march of over 300,000 civilians and soldiers into Sarawi territory, where the remaining Spanish troops would stand down without any shots fired. This would become known as the Green March and is really one of the defining events in Sarawi political history. Mauritania would also send troops over their side of the border along with support from the French military on Mauritania's behalf. Many people were forced to flee the country in the violence that resulted between the Polisario Front, Morocco, and Mauritania. So in... 1976, uh, the Polisario Front at this point is based out of Algeria, who is historically the greatest political ally that the Sarawis have. Algeria has served as like a safe haven, military support, financial aid. So we're not going to be talking too much about Algeria here, but I want to make it clear that like Algeria's support is tantamount to this whole cause existing. Uh, the, in 1976, though, the Polisario Front would declare from exile in Algeria the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. So they are declaring it in exile, but in 1976, now the country has been named and, and sort of given a purpose. It's very recent. It is. And at, by this point, since Spain has pulled out of the region, the Polisario Front's stated goal is now to liberate Western Sahara from Morocco and Mauritania. Mm -hmm. uh, 
1979, Mauritania did sign a peace treaty with the Polisario Front in a meeting, meeting known as the Algiers Accords. In this meeting, uh, Mauritania renounced all claims on Western Sahara and ceased all hostilities with the Polisario Front. They have since adopted a stance of neutrality in the ongoing conflict. With Mauritania withdrawn from the region as well, though, Morocco unilaterally declares that it is taking over the whole province. Damn it, Morocco. Uh, so the fighting continues, and at this point, the majority of the Sahrawi people have either like left as refugees or are living in Polisario-administrated refugee camps in Algeria. These camps persist to this day. The vast majority of Sahrawi people live in these Algerian refugee camps, uh, several hundred thousand people. So with hostilities continuing on into the early 1980s, Morocco would begin in 1981 building a berm. So a berm, this was a word I hadn't come across before, but it's sort of like a, a raised line of land, like a, a hill in a line. Sort we of had thing. Berms at my elementary school. Okay. And we weren't allowed to run on them. Oh, there, there you go. There was always someone being like, get off the berms. <laughs> it's great. So this this berm that Morocco built would eventually span twenty seven hundred kilometers wow. across the entire like division of sort of what Polisario is holds and is administering and what Morocco is administering. And this is, if not the longest minefield on Earth, it is right the fuck up there. Oh my god. So it is, it's heavily landmined, it's heavily patrolled, it is known as the Morocco Wall. The United Nations would propose a peace plan in 1988 that included a referendum to be held on whether the Sahrawi people would rather be a part of Morocco or be part of a... Polisario-administered independent government. Seems like a pretty fucking easy choice at this point. At this point, yeah. (laughs) These talks eventually started to sort of happen in 1991, leading to a ceasefire between the two nations. In response to these plans, though, because the plan was to hold a referendum, to to have the people of Sarawi vote on whether they would be independent... Morocco begins moving tens of thousands of settlers into the region and insisting that every single one of them have their voting credentials checked for this referendum. The question of voting eligibility, too, is not made any easier by the fact that the Sahrawi people are a traditionally nomadic people. Yeah. And most of them are in Algeria? Yep. Okay. Well, (laughs) great. So Morocco continues to build their infrastructure up in the Western Sahara, despite pushback from the Polisario front. In the early 1990s, Polisario suffered a major setback when Algeria was forced to ramp down their military and financial support due to some internal issues that I'm sure we'll talk about in our Algeria episode. Mm -hmm. I do want to make it clear, though, that Algeria's government has continued to even when, like, the money and the military aid dried up a bit, like, they have continued to advocate diplomatically for an independent Sahrawi nation at every turn. Uh, so Morocco had, up until this point, been ruled by a guy named King Hassan II, and he was 
reluctant to participate in these peace talks, but ultimately he did, even though he was being kind of a shithead and doing all this stuff to hedge his bets. And he made that berm. <laughs> but he passed away in 1999, where these this referendum has still not happened, and he is succeeded by his son, King Muhammad IV. And Muhammad IV completely backs out of these peace talks, 100% unwilling to even hear about the idea of an independent Sahrawi nation. And he announced in 2001 that Morocco would officially not hold the referendum. The UN would begin proposing alternative solutions to the Morocco government, and they would soundly reject anything that had the slightest hint of independence to it. Like, they're, they're just not coming to the table at so all. are they just being stubborn at this point? Because, again, it's desert, right? N- not anymore. Now it's desert with enormous phosphate deposits. Okay, so they're still That are after... in the section that Morocco owns. So they're still after the phosphate. Yeah. Okay. So, as of late 2020, I, I know we try to stay away from current events, but I'm gonna sort of get us right up to the edge here. Sometimes you have to. Uh, as of late 2020, the Polisario Front was growing tired with the decades of political gridlock and would take control of a major trade route between Morocco and Mauritania. When Morocco's military broke the blockade in November... Polisario announced that they were no longer observing the 1991 ceasefire. In December of 2020, our good, good, you know, friend of the podcast, Donald Trump, <laughs> his government, having him on? <laughs> his government would become the first and to this day only government in the world to recognize Morocco's claim over the Western Sahara. God damn it. This was done in exchange for Morocco resuming diplomatic activity and trade with Israel, which they had not had since Morocco had fought against Israel in the Yom Kippur War. So what I found really upsetting about looking into this is as far as I could tell, international reactions to this event were only concerned with like, hey, it's good that Morocco and Israel are talking again. Mm -hmm. Mm. The only countries that I saw, I'm sure Algeria did and just didn't get that much coverage for it, to be honest, but uh, the only countries that I saw actually stepping forward to be like, this is really bad for the Sahrawis, though, were Spain and Russia, surprisingly. Hmm. But uh, disappointing how much it's not in the news. It, right? Anybody's it, news. Ever since the the Polisario front, I I can't blame them for I can't blame them for for like canceling the ceasefire. But like this is actively ramping up. It is yeah. looking like we are returning to active war between Morocco and the Sahrawis, and it is mm. it's. I, I've been asking everyone I talk to, have you ever heard of this nation? And not a single person I've spoken to has. I'm curious because when I did my episode on like East Timor and Kosovo, for example, there was some like news coverage. Like you can read news stories that yeah. that came up in the research. Did you find that or is it just kind of not there? Uh, like with regards to this country, yeah. there, I, I found them when I looked for them, yeah. but like. Not easily. Yeah. Okay. The The other thing I will mention before we, we break for fun facts is that while many countries have 
recognized the Polisario front throughout the years. Canada never has and has never made any sort of acknowledgement or support of an independent Sarawi nation. Come on, guys. Pick it up. Can I ask, did the Polisario Front have a leader? Uh, they do. The The interesting thing about the Polisario Front, as far as I can tell, is they, it's, I'm sure that there there is sort of a bias and a political bent in terms of ideologies within the group, but the, mm-hmm. the at least the stated goal of the Polisario Front is not to be a political group. It is to be a liberating group. They have stated oh, okay. that in the event of a liberated Sarawi nation, they would either simply cease to exist or become one political party mm. in the field of political parties. Right. So, yeah, they, I, I couldn't find people getting that far in depth into the ideologies and like outlooks of the Polisario front, which is tough because like, you know, maybe they believe some horrific shit that I'm not covering. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but, but they have their own territory, right? They're, they they control about 20% of, of the disputed territory where Morocco controls the other 80. I've got like, a fun fact. Hey. Let's hear it. <laughs> uh, so I learned for this about a really fascinating musician, and I will play some of her music for us at the break. But uh, Mariam Hassan is a Sarawi uh, folk and blues singer born in Spanish Sahara back when it was still called that mm-hmm. in the portion of the country that is currently occupied by Morocco. She grew up and worked as a nurse in the Sarawi refugee camps in Algeria before she became a successful singer as part of the group Shahid El Uwali. And this band performed from 1976 to 1998, at which time uh, Hassan began a solo career. She sings in both Spanish and in Hassaniya, which is the Sarawi language, or the primary one at least, and was a a really well-recognized figure in the world music scene. Uh, There were documentaries made about her. She played at all sorts of big festivals across the world. Uh, She did ultimately pass away in 2015 in the the same refugee camps that she had spent most of her life in. Her music was recently sampled for the theme song to a a 2021 Belgian film by the name of Cool Abdul. It follows a boxer named Ismail Abdul and the song fucking bangs. It samples her voice. It's so good. So, yeah, that's kind of all I've got for us. It it was not an easy country to find anything out about. Like, if you try yeah. to find out about the country, people are only talking about the war. Yeah. The the food we're making, like, I could not find a quote-unquote Sarawi dish. So we're making... We found out that they eat a lot of couscous and they eat a lot of lamb. So <laughs> we're, we're making couscous and lamb. Uh, sort of Moroccan inspired loosely. It makes sense though, because if you know your whole population has been in a refugee camp forever, do you really have the chance to no. come up yeah. with no exactly a national dish? No, you do not. Low on the priority list. <laughs> so yeah, we're gonna take a break, and we are gonna listen then to the anthem of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, and we are gonna eat some couscous and lamb. Sounds okay, great. Sounds good.
Hello and welcome back to In All of Us Command. We have just taken a break to listen to Yabani as Sahara. Um, this is an interesting anthem in that uh, we literally know nothing about it. Lyrics are by unknown. Music is by unknown. It was adopted in 1976, like when the country was founded. End of story. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. that's all I have this time. This is, I think, a first in lack of information. We can at least usually be like, this is the fucking name of the guy who wrote usually, it. Usually, yes. Usually it's a competition. We don't even know that here. Yeah. No, I genuinely have no, not even the beginnings of an idea of where this song came from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, was it a pre-existing song? Was it? No idea. Some, yeah. yeah. No idea. So let's, I guess, dive right into our ratings. Yeah, I guess we kind of have no choice. Yeah, so let's talk lyrics, mm-hmm. uh, which I feel is where we we really have a lot to get into here. These lyrics are, they're big. They're uh, very specific. <laughs> I like the part where it says, cut off the head of the invader. Yeah, it's Twice. so... <laughs> They really don't dance around the issues. On they this do one. not. No, they do they, not. they really do not. And I enjoy, I enjoy the conviction of these yeah. lyrics. Yes, absolutely. so many, not like totally firm statements. We are the ones who smash that idol. We are the ones yeah. who understand that beautiful lesson. Like, I think it's a really fun way that these are sort of constructed and laid out uh, in comparison to some of the other anthems we've looked at. Yeah, they're not trying to crowd please. No. At all, which, and I'm like, I believe this was probably pleasing to the crowd in the end, but it's not the, the goal is not to do something safe. Yeah, yeah. Here, it's, it's really got is, a purpose. You know? They're, they're certainly unusual. swinging for the fences. They are, they are. I guess they got like nothing left to lose. Yeah. But I, just go for it. <laughs> I do think there's some nice, like, some nice turns of phrases in here. I like mm-hmm. the way that it uses the the repetition of yeah. phrases, kind of like this uh, no submission, no yielding, no agent, no invader. Like, yeah. I, I like the way it uses those those lists, followed up by the we are the one section. And I, I think it's it was written very purposefully. Yes. And I like that about it. There's a real, like, conviction and epic kind of intensity like it, it sounds like someone's addressed to the nation or something almost you know yeah and apart from like or it reads like that doesn't sound like it at all <laughs> <laughs> apart from that piano version like i'd say there's at least a, a a decent chunk of military in the way this song is being performed oh, yeah. Yeah. but uh we'll talk about that music for these lyrics i think I'm pretty impressed overall. They're they're pretty solid. I'm going to go nine for this, I yeah, think. Yeah, nine for Kate. I think I'm going to go eight for these ones. Yeah, I'm going to go eight as well. All right. Let's talk a bit about the music, which is kind of strange. Yeah. Uh, Nils, you compared it while we were listening to both a drinking song and a children's song, which yeah. I think we're both quite apt, actually. Like, yeah. especially the second version really sounded to me like kids singing on a playground almost. Yes. Yeah. Um, I just, do think that has to have been kids in the so. recording. Or at least there were some kids. Yeah. There, someone also said it was chaotic, which is absolutely true. Yeah. The, the chaos reigns, that's for sure. But the instrumental version sounded like something you would play at a dog show. Yeah, the, the piano <laughs> version had none of that, yeah. like, yeah. fire and chaos that the other versions had. 
I mean, there's... I think the other ones fell a little short on fire. To be fair, fair especially enough. considering the lyrics, is that's, quite a that's fair. There, 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 there maybe could be a bit more fire in this music. Yeah, they were fun though. But like, yeah, it's it's got yeah, energy. It does absolutely. I I think I'm gonna go. Unfortunately, it is also like quite repetitive at times. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of those repeated phrases that I like so much in the lyrics are then repeated musical phrases mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't serve the song as well. I think I'm maybe going to go for a six on this music. Yeah, I was thinking six as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm because. OK, so I I did enjoy listening to two of the versions. But once you've got into the instrumental version and the actual like bones of the song, it doesn't have the the kind of fun, like casual nature. I'm going yeah. to I'm going to give it a, a four, four. Yeah, I really right. care for it. Background story. Do we give it a zero? I don't know. Is that fair? It doesn't feel fair. I think what we laid out as like what we want to give a zero in background story is like, would the world have been better off if this story didn't happen? That being said, I I don't I don't know. I don't know anything. We can, I I guess, in a way, like glean some stuff from the lyrics. Yeah, I mean, the, sort the, of. there is a story of, you know, people fighting for their freedom in this, but that's not necessarily the story of the anthem. Itself, yeah, exactly. But. Yeah. So I don't know, two and a half, maybe. Sure, sure I'll go three <laughs> just for fun. Nils? Yeah, yeah, I'll do three. Uh, historical significance, I definitely think we we can give some here. Like, this is an anthem that knows what it wants it does it's very and since here to say some stuff like the the sarawi nation as it stands today is essentially the polisario front that does that seem Mm -hmm. fair to say if if the the whole stated goal of this institution is a free and independent sarawi then what what else could you look for than this song like Mm -hmm. It, it's, it's complete conviction, I think, speaks to, like, how could a song like this not have been born out of this kind of struggle? Yeah, it has to be. You don't get it otherwise. Uh, historical significance, I think, is this anthem's greatest strength. I, I think I'm going to go a nine here. Yeah, I'm going to go nine, too. Me, three. And X Factor. This has some X factor. It has some X factor. Not in I, the music as much, but yeah, like like we were talking about, we want more of that sort of revolutionary fire in the music that yeah. exists so much in the lyrics. Yeah, it's it does have X factor in the sense that it's kind of bizarre how intense y- yes. the music is and how like <laughs> chill and like fun times this this the actual uh, lyric or music is. Yeah, yeah. it's uh. It's a bit of an odd one for sure. Yeah, I, I think, think I'm gonna go maybe a maybe a seven for X Factor. I think it's got some like just a lot of weirdness working it's, in its favor. Yeah, it's weird for sure. I'm gonna go. I think five and a half. Nils, <sighs> that's a good question. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go seven as well. I I thought it was there's some stuff. All right, then we will take a little second here and add all these up.
So that gives us a final score of 63.5, maybe a little higher than I was expecting, yeah, actually, uh, which would land it right between Guyana and San Marino. Okay. Which I think that is about right. I think it's fair, like given how complicated and hard it was to rate because of the lack of information. I don't know. You can only do what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, I, I'm glad that it came out with a respectable score despite lacking so much information because I do think there's a lot of good DNA there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. But this has been just a real heavy one. Let's, mm. let's cross our fingers and toes and pray that I'm drawing something a little easier for next time. I wish it for you. Let's see. <laughs> All right, keep those fingers crossed and tell me what's behind number 152. 152. <laughs> oh, no. Rhonda. Oh, fuck. Oh, God. I'm so sorry. Damn. I'm so sorry. Okay, well, we'll be back next week to learn a bit about Nauru with Kate. It's going to be awesome. fun. And uh, yeah, then in two weeks, I can cover Rwanda. You know, what's funny is that like the Saudi Arab Democratic Republic is number 153. I oh. thought it was pretty close. Yeah, yeah. so you're just, you're just one on top of there. Oh, good. Good luck. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. we get something very wrong? Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC podcast or send us an email at inallofuscommandpodcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we are not too big to admit we are wrong and it will be corrected.